In this episode of Vanishing Gradients, I'm speaking with Katie Bauer about her time working in data science at both Twitter and Reddit. At the time of recording, Katie was a data science manager at Twitter, and prior to that, a founding member of the data team at Reddit. She's now head of data science at Gloss Genius, so congrats on the new job, Katie. In this conversation, we dive into what types of challenges social media companies face that data science is equipped to solve. In doing so, we traverse the difference and similarities in companies such as Twitter and Reddit, the major differences in being an early member of a data team and joining an established data function at a larger organization, the supreme importance of robust measurement and telemetry in data science, along with the mixed incentives for career data scientists, such as building flashy new things instead of maintaining existing infrastructure. Now, I've always found conversations with Katie to be a treasure trove of insights into data science and machine learning practice, along with key learnings about data science management. In a word, Katie helps me to understand our space better. In this conversation, she told me that one important function data science can serve in any organization is creating a shared context for lots of different people in the organization. We dive deep into what this actually means, how it can play out, Traversing the world of dashboards, metric stores, feature stores, machine learning products, the need for top-down support, and much, much more. Okay, so before we jump in, a bit of bookkeeping. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would also be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice. And if you like it, write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. If you don't like it, definitely don't write a review. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Hey there, Katie, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you here. So you're currently a data science manager at Twitter. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, you were one of the founding members of the data team at Reddit. Yep, lots of social media. Well, and two very different types of almost different models of what social media can look like on our globally connected information superhighway. I haven't <laughs> used that term in years. I like it. I like it. Kind of retro. Yeah, and it's a bit, t- it makes me think of like my Super Mario, my 8-bit days. I just had a recollection. I went back to like my mum in the, so I'm 39. So I'm in that weird like Gen, is it millennial meets Gen X or is that, or Gen Y? I don't even, any, I'm part millennial and part something else. But I have these memories of my mum shouting out kindly. She isn't like an angry shout but shouting out, um, hey, Hugo, 
get off the internet. I need to use the phone. Oh yeah, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm just old enough that I had to use dial-up internet on in my early internet days. So yeah, pretty wild. Sounded like the gates of hell were opening every time you you made a connection. At the sound is it like burnt into my memory. I'll actually try to find a sample of that to include in this episode. <laughs> Some real early internet stuff. I love that this is where we've gone already. I am. I actually think this is actually quite important because things like Twitter and Reddit did emerge from certain ideas we had around what the early internet should be and, you know, the democratization of information and all of these things. And data science and machine learning, I think, one of its super important functions is when we have social media and figuring out how to get, quote unquote, the right information in hands of the people who it's relevant for, right? Which is a challenge that really came to the fore there. And these are things we'll touch on, but of course, we're here to chat about you. This is all about you, Katie. And well, I mean that in a non-joking sense that I think one of the purposes of this podcast is just delve a bit into, like we can find lots of stuff online around it, like how to you know, build the most recent transformer scene and whatever, right? But hearing what people actually do and what led them to what, what they do and understanding data scientists and practitioners is something I love to do. So maybe we could start just how you got into the data world. What was it like growing up as Katie and what led you on this journey of interacting with data in a technical and professional way? Yeah. For a long time, I felt like there is no direct path into data science. And they're starting to be majors and masters for it now, which is crazy. But not not when I was getting started. Like many people, I ended up in the data world because I didn't want to pursue an academic career. I had studied linguistics in school, and I did both a fair amount of computational linguistics as well as sociolinguistics. And in the course of doing that, I felt like I had good enough programming skills that I could go work as a software engineer when I finished school because I, I really wanted to take a break and figure out something else. Or maybe I would go back, I wasn't sure. But after I tried getting a job as a software engineer, no one would actually hire me to do it. And in a weird twist of fate, I got hired at a startup to be a linguist. It was a, a natural language search startup that it's defunct now, but they wanted someone to help them curate their data sets to work on the, the parser of the queries and it was a small startup, so I ended up doing all manner of things. And in the course of doing that job, just kind of became a general purpose data person. When was that? I was in 2013 in San Francisco. And I probably first heard the term data science at a meetup around that time as well. And thought, hey, that sounds pretty interesting. And just kind of started moving towards more data-centric roles as I moved through my career. So I spent time in ad tech for a bit, working as a business analyst, doing a lot of reporting. Eventually moved on to a data science role at another ad tech company, working on targeting algorithms for poster sellers and people selling clothes and that kind of thing. And then eventually, after that, moved to Reddit as one of their first data science hires and was there for quite a while, about four years. And I ended up becoming a manager there. And eventually, during the pandemic, when lots of people were job hopping, I also job hopped over to Twitter, uh, where I am now. Cool. What a journey. Yeah, it's been interesting. <laughs> yeah, there are a few things I want to kind of touch on from that journey. That The first is, I'm interested in the role of programming for linguists. I'm, all, I'm generally interested in the role of programming for domain experts in a variety of things. But has programming become more prevalent for working linguists and sociolinguists? Well, for sociolinguistics, it was R. I was using R to do data analysis. I actually wrote a paper uh, at one point about 
social factors that might predict whether people used emojis. Or they weren't emojis at the time, it was emoticons. So it's like a, <laughs> do you have a nose in your smiley face? And do you do that versus laughing? Like, how do you represent laughter was something I tried to predict. It wasn't like a very good data set, though, because I was not collecting it in a scalable way. I was getting text message data. And to get it, I had to actually just talk to people and get them to forward me their texts. So it was very, very limited. Uh, interestingly, I actually remember a grad student in the department doing a presentation one time about an analysis he had done on this website called Twitter, that he was getting geotagged tweets and comparing that to whether people use the word pop or soda, which, you know, fizzy carbonated beverages, uh, it's very regional in the U.S. And also very compelling to me as someone who grew up in the Midwest saying pop uh, to actually see in this data that was being collected automatically from this weird website, Twitter, that indeed all the people saying pop were geotagged as being in Ohio and Michigan and, and Chicago and that sort of thing. Like it was just, it was really cool to see that. And it made me realize like there's tons of language data on the internet. Maybe I should learn how to get access to it, uh, which is partly what, what drove me over to computational linguistics is I, I wanted to learn about data processing techniques for language. Awesome. And you just, I have seen a map of the United States, which is colored with respect to whether they say soda or pop. And I remember there are some either states or at least counties which say Coke. Mm, yeah. <laughs> for general soda. Like you'll be like, I want a Coke. And then they'll be like, do you want Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper? So Coke is the general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the Google of soft drinks. In, in the south of the US. Oh, man. I love that iced tea down there as well, especially in the <laughs> summertime. I'm also interested that you felt you had enough skills to be a software developer and that didn't... The story's usually the opposite, right? That people think they don't have enough skills to... You know, I can do data science and data analysis, but I would never in my wildest dream, maybe in my wildest dreams, but I would never feel like I had enough skills to be a software engineer. So how did you come to that realization? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually picked up a computer science minor when I was like, I want to learn more about computational linguistics. And like I did a ton of Java programming in school and like I had like some student jobs where I would do a little bit of coding. It was mostly my ignorance, I think, <laughs> that made me not realize the style of coding that an employer might be looking for. I mean, I have no idea how good my educational program was. People don't look me up on LinkedIn and insult my school. I'm sure their computer science program is fine. But like I wasn't learning about like version control or something or like I wasn't like collaboratively coding or anything. So it was just kind of like someone had done some projects in school. At least that's my assumption about how my resume was processed. That's fascinating. I came from the opposite perspective where I was working in research science, in biology and physics, right? And we were like, okay, we need to code to, we've got like terabytes of, you know, RNA, PCR data and all of this stuff. And I was like, we need to figure it out how to code to analyze this stuff. And of course, that was collaborating with biologists and then figuring out, oh, we need some version control to do that. So it's interesting to see these kind of opposite paths lead to similar places. I suppose there's an evolving question around there. And this has been a question for some time now, but we still haven't really figured out what, we know some of them, but we haven't figured out what software engineering best principles and rules of thumb and processes to build into data analysis and data science and machine learning yet. Do you feel that way? Or you may see something very different where you are as well. No, I mean, I agree, actually. I mean, like, maybe this is something that we can really drill into, but... Something that, like my role that I have in my current job right now, it's like not working on the consumer product. It's 
focused on our infrastructure organization and measuring whether it's effective or like trying to find where we're having roadblocks or just making sure we're prioritizing things better within the organization. So like I think about how engineers work a lot. And it's interesting to compare it to data science or data analysis or whatever you want to call what we do. Like there are so many things that are, there's better tooling to support software engineers. There's like just way better understanding of like good models of collaboration. The style of coding is different, frankly, as well. One thing that maybe is a good example of that, coding for most web developers or people who are working in a distributed computing environment like they're not manually invoking their code. It, it ends up operating in a server somewhere and maybe it gets invoked millions of times in a day or, or more. But for the average data scientist, it's like a script that you wrote that you're using to, to process some task or, or do something. I mean, I'm also talking about a particular flavor of data scientist who maybe is mostly focused on analysis, maybe not someone who's productionizing an ML model. But like the style that you have to program in if you're going to write for distributed computing is way more defensive. You have to do all of these things to make sure you can diagnose what happens or you can catch an error early so you can gracefully fail and something doesn't just randomly break in a way that would be annoying or, or catastrophic in some circumstances. And it just means that you spend so much more time thinking about how the code performs and how you can make sure that like it, other people can understand it and read it. Because like, there's always the classic example of like if you're going to name a variable something that you would be annoyed if you got paged by an on-call system at three in the morning and you, you see a variable name that's like after someone's cat or something. <laughs> like that's like not a good practice. Yeah. The code that is written by a software engineer is generally meant to be operated by other people and understood by other people. Whereas in a lot of cases, if you're doing coding for the purposes of data analysis, it's more of a solo activity. It doesn't get shared as much. And the coding, I guess, is really more of a means to an end, which is whatever you're trying to do in the analysis, whatever you're trying to uncover or find or do to transform your data. Like, as long as you get to that end state, data scientists typically care less about how you got there. And I don't think that's necessarily good, but it is often the way people code by default in data science, I find. I think it's not good across a whole spectrum or even multi-dimensional space. I sound like such a tech douchebag saying multi-dimensional. <laughs> this is orthogonal. Let's double click on orthogonality. But what I really mean is that when we, and I think productionizing is such a, a big space. Like I think a lot of the value in productionizing models might be creating a PowerPoint that informs an executive decision, right? But when deploying things, let's say to a REST API or something along those lines, I think there's a good question what type of software engineering best practices we take there and what newness is implied and involved in introducing the real world into the computational system via data. So suddenly we have software that interacts with the world. We require experiment trackers. And I'd use the term experiment trackers really broadly, like not just for experiments, but for things currently in production. And so what type of new techniques do we actually need to deal with software that for the first time, really heavily inter... There aren't just not narrowly scoped inputs, right? You've got something which is almost an evolving, breathing thing interacting with the world. And software engineering by itself doesn't solve that question, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, like, ML observability is not something I am deeply knowledgeable of, but I think it's kind of getting at some of what you're saying, where people will monitor distributions of input variables to, to algorithms that are in production just to make sure something unexpected doesn't happen or you have a better idea that it's about to if you can't stop it. Absolutely. So we've 
gone in the deep end. I want to pull back a bit. <laughs> and at, at a high level, you've worked in a variety of different contexts on a variety of different interesting problems. And I think as you hinted at, data science isn't just one that like, it's a whole world of things that all of us do. So I'm just wondering from your experience, what have you seen data teams actually do? And how has data science differed across the different places you've worked? Yeah. I'll start by saying that in my mind, data science is almost a term like software engineer, where if someone tells me they're a software engineer, I don't know specifically what they do. Like, I don't know what languages they're working in. I don't know, like, is it a payment system versus a social media feed? It could be a lot of different things, but it gives me a good idea of what they're not doing. Like, they're not selling things. They're, they're probably not mostly doing analysis. And to me, data science is a term kind of like that. And people are kind of picky about having specific job titles to reflect what they're doing a little bit better. And maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. But I feel like we shouldn't necessarily hold ourselves to a higher standards than, than the software engineers that we work with. But at any rate, like having the top job title data scientist, I have productionized ML algorithms. I have been essentially an analyst kind of doing basic dashboarding, metrics development, writing lightweight data pipelines. I've done precise statistical work. It's kind of all over the place. My biggest unifying theme, I would say, is that really you are trying to solve a problem for a business with data. And there are lots of different ways you can do that. And what technique you apply in a certain circumstance, it kind of matters Like how mature is the company, how complicated is the problem, how much time do you have, how much does it need to scale, a bunch of stuff. So... I like the idea of answering business questions using data. I suppose a provocative question, the contrarian in me wants to ask, let me get this right. If we're not productionizing things or automating decision-making, I have a kind of a worldview where a lot of companies use data retroactively to inform decisions they've already made. We still live in a world of, you know, we act on the highest paid person's opinion and so that the data function isn't necessarily as effective as we'd all like to be in those types of cases. Is that something that you've seen or would you push back on that? I agree with you. I think, I mean, I don't know, like people will say like the goal of data science is better decisions. And while I don't disagree with that, like it's kind of a, a milk toast thing to say like, yeah, we all want to make better decisions. And I also don't know that data is always the thing that you should be using. Like maybe someone has 20 years of experience working in an industry and you don't have enough data on your particular system to know from an A-B test that you ran that a choice is going to be good, but this person knows from their long history working in that industry that a certain thing will work well. The thing I like to think about as an alternative to helping people make better decisions is creating a shared context for lots of different people in a company. And like the other thing is like, if you're trying to target like an individual decision in particular, you are putting all of your eggs in one basket you really got to fill their environment with data in different ways so that they're used to it, that it just becomes a part of their way of understanding how things work. And everyone likes to complain about dashboards, but they are the classic and tried and true way to do this. If a dashboard is not being used, it's probably just not useful. But I have seen dashboards be like an absolutely critical thing that like when it doesn't work, stakeholders freak out and <laughs> they're a little bit worried and actually fixing it does help a lot. It's not just about having a dashboard. It's about taking the things that are in that dashboard and applying them in different contexts. So the dashboard may be like an always-on way to look at this metric, but you might want to look at it at the start of a project as you figure out like how many people could we potentially target with this new feature of, of whatever we're building. 
or you might want to use it to figure out like there's an unexpected subpopulation in this group that we're targeting. Like if you segment metrics in particular ways, you can be surprised and find interesting things about how people are using a, a product or a platform that you wouldn't have expected them to, but they are. Having data be just a tool of understanding and learning about what you're doing and also a way to do it at scale when you can't just go and ask everyone who's using your product. That's something that you just need to like demonstrate the value of sometimes. I totally agree with that. And I love the idea. You didn't quite use the term creating a shared context, which I hope will come back to. One other way of thinking about that is helping to establish some sort of ground truth for the company, some foundation of worldview and knowledge base in order to make collaborative decisions possible as well. And not only collaborative decisions, but decisions across different teams, as you you hinted at. Where my mind actually went is kind of this burgeoning field of feature stores, which is part marketing. But a lot of marketing arises from actually important concerns and then gets co-opted, right? But I think the idea of having shared features across an organization where you can build something for your team and then it's like, oh, actually, I'm building something relatively similar myself. Let's use the feature generated by the growth team to do this. Yeah. I mean, an, an interesting flavor of that that I've seen at more than one place now is that for experimentation platforms, if a company is really trying to scale its A-B testing, they often end up developing kind of like a metrics store or a metrics platform of some type. Exactly. Because across experiments, you need metrics to be the exact same thing. But then people start finding that so useful that they use it for other things. And exactly the same kind of, like you want to like do analysis on your tool <laughs> to see if people are using it in unexpected ways. But like that's happened at multiple places that I've worked. And feature stores are like coming from the other side a little bit where it's like making sure everything is the same in, in ML and making things a bit more modular. Yeah. And like modularity is kind of a trendy thing. And I mean, trendy is maybe like a, a dismissive way to say it, but it's a thing that people are realizing the power of in data right now for sure. Yeah. I think trendy is the best, one of the more generous ways to put it as well. I actually think it's very important, but we do, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before and probably will again, but you know, the fragmentation of the tooling landscape, it's there are a lot of cynical approaches there and also a lot of valuable things. But even, you know, a team like yours, and I know we can't get too much into this, but thinking about build versus buy, what you do buy, the amount of calls you need to get on to figure out what product actually, you, you try to find out what a product does without, or what an open source, open source is very different. So I'm sorry, what a product does without getting on a call with a sales, sales team, I mean, that can be incredibly challenging because all the videos look the same and I love what you're saying about the importance of measurement. And I do think it comes back to something we mentioned earlier, thinking about how to get decisions informed by data. I think the function is important. I think correct tooling and technology is important and productive processes. So what I mean by that, I'll give perhaps a non-controversial example or less controversial than the types of things you and I do optimizedly, right? So 15 years ago or 16, whenever it was, this product changed online experimentation by productizing it, giving it correct processes, which allowed the correct answers or the truth to the ground truth, quote unquote, or the results of the experiments to be surfaced to the correct people in order to inform product changes. Whereas before that, it was highest paid person's opinion and a great deal. So I think that's kind of what we're trying to build in this space as well. Well, that the importance of tooling is key there. And I think that dovetails nicely into the types of things you think about at Twitter. Yeah, well, and like what you're getting at too, I think it's an interesting and kind of, like this is a trend that happens in any organization that starts getting platformy after a while is 
you have a process that you really get down and like, you know, all of the steps and you have the idealized way to do it, that becomes infrastructure at some point, or it could, like it's a good candidate to be infrastructure. And when you start having people arguing a lot about process, it might be time to turn something into infrastructure or a tool. And even, even with analysis too, like I feel like analysis is a process and there are kind of archetypes of analysis. Experimentation is one of them. It's like probably the most successful analysis archetype that lots of people have built tools around. But funnel analysis, for example, might be another one that there's a product amplitude that makes it really easy to do funnel analysis. And I suspect there may be other analysis archetypes out there that I don't know what they are. If I thought about it enough, <laughs> I probably could come up with some other examples. But that's something that like there are just like canonical ways to build certain software products. And there are definitely canonical ways or there will be canonical ways to do certain types of data analysis, I think, one day. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think we're d- discovering what that looks like and will will take time. And maybe function dependent and also vertical dependent. Yeah. So with respect to what you're thinking about at Twitter, so I've written down here, I think I wrote this, you may have written it though, you're on a quest to have mature measurement for the core tech org at Twitter. I love the word quest there. Was that your word or do you use the word quest? (laughs) So you're on a quest. That's great. That's right. What is, I mean, when I think of quests, I think of like beware of dragons, right? Yeah. Or at least sacred cows. Exactly. So so I love the idea of mature measurement because I, I think this is, well, mature measurement is the holy grail. So I suppose it is deeply quest-like here. So I'm wondering what this means to you, the idea of having mature measurement for core tech org at, at Twitter and what does the path look like? Sure. When I joined the company, I guess like a, a year and a half ago, I joined to stand up a data science practice around measuring the quality of our infrastructure and and how well we were utilizing it. And one of the first things I did was I just looked at what data sources we had available. And there were some things I was quite surprised to find. It was like really useful, really rich, but the future was there and not evenly distributed. There, For every really amazing graph database that we had, there was something that was being tracked on a spreadsheet. So one thing that I realized was that I needed to create some kind of framework or standards because there was just so many things that, that needed to evolve to a point where it could be easy to use measurement to guide your operations. So I put together a framework which is almost like passive-aggressively simplistic, where the, the first stage of this is just, do you have any data whatsoever? If you don't, you should probably get some. And like how you actually do that is one of the challenges. It's something that ends up being something, it's just a big point of discussion because how you add telemetry to an internal tool can vary a lot depending on whether it's a command line tool or something that has like a, a web UI. Like they, it's not just like, oh, just go and implement telemetry and they know exactly what you mean. Well, I was going to joke, we've joked before about like in Python, you import time, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking about a package called to like import pip install telemetry and we're done here, right? Actually, nobody go and do that. Like I've said that now and someone's going to go and do that, right? Like the one I sent you was like from TFX import ethics or something. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> no, it was import fairness. It wasn't even oh ethics. Gosh, it was import yeah. fairness. Okay, sorry, we derailed yeah, yeah, yeah. there. But yeah, yeah how but, do you but, import like, telemetry? Yeah, well, I mean, like you don't necessarily, like there are definitely frameworks and tools to help people do it. But even if you have like a tool to help you, it doesn't necessarily tell you what you should be tracking. So like another thing that a company is implementing telemetry is 
what do you actually need to know? What are your business questions? What do you want to make decisions about? And making sure you have data for that is a big part of being mature, is having a purpose for it. Just having data for no reason can be even a risk sometimes. Once you have actual data, then you need to start actually turning it into metrics. You need to make them available somewhere where you don't have to have a bunch of skill to access, or maybe not even skill, but you just have to like know about problems to, to avoid them maybe. And to, to give a concrete example of that, like I'm sure everyone who's worked with some crafty old eventing system or, or database, like there'll be like some weird thing that you need to filter out. And like, you have to know about this problem to like avoid stuffing your toe on it. Yeah. If you want data to be broadly useful, you need to have that represented somewhere in a metric and a data pipeline and a data model so that everyone is doing it in the same way. Because that, that's part of building a shared context is everyone is starting from the same baseline and using the same abstractions to think about how things work and are connected. And a lot of these things aren't encoded in data models or in documentation. I mean, they're you know passed around the campfires, so to speak, right? Or told over the water cooler conversation. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, everyone knows that, just you need blah, right? Yeah. Well, and, and to your point earlier about like how can we bring in coding best practices, this is something that goes in version control, is the things that need to be standard across all of your analysis or across all of your tools. Like this is the, like having a metrics platform attached to your experimentation platform, this is exactly that. It's having a standardized definition of a metric so people don't stub their toe by forgetting to filter out like this one date where there was uh, a problem or like maybe there's a, just like a weird format of a, a user ID or something that appears sometimes. Like you got to know about these things to get rid of them, but you don't have to if it's presented in a nightly, nicely packaged metric or something like that. What are the challenges in building a mature measurement system for any, like not necessarily only at Twitter, but that you've seen or you think would be apparent in across the board? Yeah. I mean, in my mind, a lot of the biggest challenges are honestly just cultural within a company. And I mean that in that, well, there's potentially two things I mean by it. One is that people are not aligned on why you would measure something. There are many situations where someone is told they need to have a metric, so they just kind of do something to get it over with. And they're like, well, we have one, leave us alone. We're going to continue doing this product that we were building anyway. And like, we know that it's good. So like, we don't need the data to tell us. Like that kind of thing is very common. Like so many people adding data and tracking and, and using data analysis is not something that they think of as maintenance or as an important way of understanding whether they're doing what they set out to do. Like it just seems like a distraction from the thing that they think is cool. Another big problem culturally, I would say, is it probably comes from data practitioners, honestly, where going back to the idea of like software engineers are all called software engineers. I think a lot of people hear data and they impose whatever they want to it. And they don't think about other cues that might inform what type of data work you would be doing at a given company. So maybe to give a concrete example, like if you're applying for a software engineering job at a small startup, you know that that's going to be different than if you're applying for a software engineering job at a FANG company. Like it's just a, a completely different scale, like different tooling, different processing, different understanding of your role. And like we don't have that same notion with a lot of data roles. Like people just see a data role and they assume it means whatever they want it to mean, which is like oversimplifying quite a bit. But like they're not necessarily taking cues from like, this is a startup. Maybe they don't have any foundational data work yet, and I will have to do that. Yeah, I mean, you find out the hard way, right? That 
if you're the first data science hire for a startup, you're going to be a data engineer for 12 to 18 months, probably two years. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think that's something that like people should be sharing their experiences more of being really data hires or being a, a data hire at different stages of company development because you do really different data work. And like this also happens every time a new domain is stood up within a company. Uh, so like Twitter has many different types of data science teams. And the one that I run is different from the one that runs like, uh, or that is embedded in our consumer product organization because the team that I run is really new. We're doing more startup-like data problems right now than the, the team that works on the consumer product, which is... And you're doing meta data problems, right? Like you're thinking about the data of how data teams operate. Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> it's fun. Since it's dataception. Yes. <laughs> or data, I was going like, Data ducken, like some form of data into ducken version with all, oh, like all, all forms of data. Data ducken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's someone's going to take that and run with it. I think. How do you even think about? Do you have to like keep in memory or keep in mind all the different data stuff, data stuff that happens across Twitter? And seems like a lot. It, I mean, it is. This is maybe getting into management stuff where uh, I'm a people manager, so I need to be good about delegating things and being comfortable with the fact that I will not personally know all of the details, no matter how fascinated with them I might be. I have to trust people on my team to be kind of like the master of some sort of context at a particular level of abstraction that's appropriate for them. So like I end up thinking at more of a broad and strategic level or, or thinking about how the team functions together, then I would probably on a day-to-day -day basis be doing a lot of the analysis myself or, or really deep on the specifics of the problems, although I obviously need to understand them too. But I, I being a people manager, don't necessarily always have as deep of a, a view as some of the people who are kind of more on the front lines doing I won't say the real work because <laughs> management is work too, but more of like what people think of when you say data science work. Yeah, management when done well is work. Maybe it's more work when done poorly, but in terms of actually creating value when done well, I think it's in incredibly important. I do question, I mean, having, I've been part of several startups and growing from like 10 to 100 people at, at, at several startups. And I do still question whether 100 people when managed with the type of growth you see in the headcount for a startup, can achieve more than 10 people. And I, I, I'm yet to be convinced that's the case with all, and it's to do with the rate of growth actually, when, especially with the emergence of middle management, when you have that quick growth, the type of energy that is sucked up in information flows in an org. I always think like, I know it's a very different case, but Instagram was acquired when it was like 13 people. Really? Yeah, exactly. But I do agree that, you know, they had a lot of non-employees generating value for them. Let's be clear about the business model there. But in terms of value creation, I'm interested in your thoughts. And this is somewhat of a leading question. We've chatted about this before and I really I really have been amazed by some things I've, I've seen you say on Twitter around this. And that's actually why I reached out originally because you were just thinking outside the box. So I'm interested in what you think the most value that data teams can create for an organization is. Yeah. I mean, I do think it depends partly on what types of functions you have on your data team. If it's a, a smaller team, it's probably going to be mostly internally facing customers. And in that case, by internally facing customers, I, I mean, like this is more of like the decision-making model where you, you've got analysts who are doing analysis, maybe answering questions that a product manager asks. And in that mode, I think really the most important thing you can do is shape how people understand the company, like build, building shared context. 
Metrics are an interesting object to me because each one of them is kind of a story about what, what you think is happening or what should be happening or what's important to happen. And for each metric, there's an intended audience uh, who would be the decision maker. And they are something that they create incentives within a company as well. And that's a very underrated part of the work of people who do data for internal customers is when you pick a particular metric as an objective for product managers in your company, like they need to hit some DAU goal if they're working on a consumer product, if they feel like they're going to be... So that's daily active users. Yes, yes, daily active users. Non-techies. Yes, <laughs> I should be defining my acronyms. No, no, no. But like, if their goal is to hit a certain DAU target, a daily active user target, they may start doing things that are ultimately not very good for the product. A great example of this, I feel like, is uh, push notifications. I, I've worked in growth analytics a fair amount. A lot of times push notifications end up getting bunched into a growth team because they are something that definitely can help increase your DAU. Like if you have a push notification system, it's a great way to re-engage people with your app because maybe they wouldn't go to it or they would have not thought about it on that day, but then they get reminded and they're like, oh, huh, that's interesting, and they go. And like you see this in kind of natural experiments for push notification systems where there's an outage and you see lower DAU on that day. But then everyone's like, oh, amazing, push notifications are such a powerful way to drive DAU. And they start just trying to game it. Like people who are working for the company and want to make sure they hit their DAU target. So suddenly everyone wants to have push notifications for their particular part of the product. And then it gets totally overloaded and people hate them. And it becomes a bad user experience. And like maybe they unsubscribe from them. Maybe they stop using the app. But like having an incentive that is tied to something like that, like you create perverse incentives for people in the company. They're trying to hit some target that is independent of value for the user of your product. And if you're not careful, lots of metrics can have that impact. Yeah, and something that comes to mind that I actually, I just had a flashback to when on the podcast I used to host, um, I had Robert Chang, who was at Airbnb at the time, but he was at Twitter before that on the growth team many years ago. And he talked about when they were trying to figure out, when Twitter was trying to figure out how to alert people of things like, one team was thinking about, I think, push notifications. Another was thinking about emails. Another was thinking about in-app, that type of stuff. And suddenly you had multiple different groups of people seemingly optimizing the same thing, but having their own internal incentives, which had interaction effects, essentially. I mean, for example, if I get a push notification, an email, and an in-app notification, I'm like, I'm being totally bombarded there. Similar, I think Facebook has had similar issues where 1pm is working on feed, another is working on notifications, and suddenly, if they're doing very different things and have their own metrics they're optimizing for, you will get perhaps unproductive interaction effects. I think at a high level, maybe what we're getting at here is the idea that a product, I can't remember whose law it is or who's saying, but the idea that a product can reflect the internal organization or disorganization of... Yes, you ship your org chart. Yeah, you ship... I have never heard it said so succinctly. You ship your org chart. So what is a role... What I'm hearing and what you're saying is that the data team, one function they can serve is actually making that org chart more connected and having a shared context across that org, which allows you to hopefully ship a more coherent consistent product experience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like a lot of data teams end up being horizontal where you'll have people 
all across the organization. And they, I mean, hopefully, if your people on your, your data team are not siloed from each other, they'll be talking to each other, they'll be reviewing each other's analysis and learning about what other people are doing. And like, that's something that I've actually felt many times working in data at companies is that I have a perspective that's kind of more cross-cutting than a lot of people. And I'll, I'll know things that I start to realize that no one else knows them just because of the unique vantage point that I have. And being able to push that out and share it with people, that, that might be one of the greatest ways that you can create value if you work on data, at least with, with internal people. And so we've talked a lot about the value for internal. What about the value data, I suppose, can create for an organization when it has to do with a lot of external stakeholders? Yeah. Well, I mean, that feels more like it's uh, an ML system. If I, I mean, at least that's my default assumption. And in that case, you probably have a lot more ability to drive direct business impact. Like you might be helping, like, I mean, like push notifications can be optimized by an ML system, for example. And like ML might actually be able to, <laughs> to help with some of those perverse incentives we were just talking about, where I know some companies will have like a push notification budget essentially where it like tries to decide like what's the actual best push notification to send at this time and just to make sure we don't blast people too much in one given week. But ML is interesting in that it is scaling value for people externally. Um, it, it's helping them find content, for example. It's helping them not be exposed to, to content that they don't want to see for whatever reason or it would be harmful for them to see. There's a lot of ways that ML is scaling data's problem-solving utility for everyone, potentially. Absolutely. So I'm wondering when we're talking about how do you create shared context and shared foundations amongst a group of people, a, large, a potentially large group of people, when there are a lot of forces maybe for them to have their own worldview to push within an organization? Yeah. I mean, I wish I had a good answer to this. I feel like it's one of my, <laughs> my biggest struggles in my job. But Really, I think the one of the best tools you can have is making sure people understand the relationships between metrics and also that there is sort of like a metrics at the right level of accountability. And like to, again, make this more concrete, like maybe there are metrics that are owned by the C-suite and the C-suite is accountable for them being hit at a certain level. And it's maybe something that moves very slowly, like a very lagging indicator because the decisions they make are big and impact the entire organization. As you get lower, you have metrics that are a bit less abstract or a bit shorter term. And, and the closer you get to maybe like an experiment, like that might be like an A-B test might have some very small metric that could be moved on like a, a two-week window. You want to be able to understand the relationship between that short-term metric and a medium-term metric and a long-term metric and your North Star metric. And that's something that helps people organize a little bit better because they're pointed at the right time horizons and the right level of granularity. But the other big thing is really, it helps to have an executive sponsor who cares about these things and can help drive the culture. It can be really hard to drive it from the bottoms up. Like It is possible, but it's going to take a long time. And I think that is also probably part of why a lot of people burn out of data careers is that they try to change a culture without having the requisite support to do it. I think that's a really important point. And I think top-down support and, as you said, having well executive-level support is incredibly important. I'm interested in what differences there were joining an organization like Twitter, which at that point had a relatively sophisticated data function and joining, being a founding member of a data team at somewhere 
like Reddit. What are the types of differences you experience in those two scenarios? Well, I mean, in both cases, there's still a bit of managing of expectations about what particular flavor of data science you're doing. I will also say like where I was at those points in my career was also pretty different. So my, <laughs> my expectations were maybe different. But joining a company where there's already a pretty established data practice, even if you're not doing the thing that is the main thing, people will have some prior for what it is that's usually pretty well developed. And if you are not doing that, it can be confusing, it can be hard. People can be not necessarily judgmental or gatekeeping, but like there might be a, an attitude of like, eh, but that's not as good as how we're doing things over here. But that being said, if you, you join a company where there's no data team at all, people might still have pretty strong expectations of what the data team will do, but they're just really informed by whatever their previous company was like. And it becomes perhaps a bit more heterogeneous in terms of the expectations you have to manage. But the other thing, I guess, that is different about those two situations is time horizons that you're expected to act along. If you are in a really new team, you have to focus on providing very concrete value early on. Because people don't necessarily have the patience to wait for you to like set up some perfect system. Like they really just want to know stuff. And the more you can get data into people's hands, the more they understand, like, yeah, you are working towards the same end. You're doing it in a different way than I do as an engineer or a product manager. But this data person still, they're looking out for us. And when you're at a company where there's more of an established data practice, like there may already be more trust in the function, even if it's not necessarily what you're doing in particular. That's a really important point because I think we've identified top level, well, top down support is incredibly important at any stage of a data function, particularly early on, I think, in, in, in a lot of ways, but also demonstrating early value instead of like going for some deep learning approach to whatever it may be, you know, maybe a dashboard that lets people know about their best performing insert something here compared to their worst performing. Yeah, whatever the product is. Yeah, whatever it is. And then you usually see some exponential decay and then you've got a whole bunch of stuff, a long tail of stuff, which doesn't deliver value and figuring out how, you know, or lead scoring, right? Come in and develop a lead scoring model that may be, for example. I like that a lot. I'm interested now if we can talk about some of the early things you did at Reddit. What was exciting there? What the data team was supposed to do and how it operated? Yeah, it was very much what you said earlier, where it's uh, your first couple of years, you're you're doing a lot of data engineering, a lot of da data pipeline writing, a lot of basic metrics work, a lot of original, like trying to figure out like what are the things that we want to track across all of our experiments. When I started, I, I did a lot of growth work uh, and I also worked on the feeds a little bit. And one of my big early projects was coming up with a, a time on site calculation metric and maybe an interesting example in trying to make something concrete. I wrote up a dashboard where I looked at time on site against our most popular posts. And I would like look at this summed number of time on site across every single user who had viewed that post for the day. And it was just some unfathomably large number that I was like, I don't know what this means. So I was trying to translate it into something that would feel realer. And what I came up with was I looked up minimum wage at the time uh, and I multiplied the total sum of hours that people had spent on these posts so that it would be like some large chunk of money. And I said, this is the cost to the economy that we're, <laughs> we're incurring because everyone uses Reddit at work uh, when they're bored and not paying attention to what they should be doing. But like having that, that metaphor was something that made things really concrete for people. And 
like being able to like kind of have a joke of like, yeah, we've we've destroyed the US workforce, like we've cost all these dollars in productivity. It was just kind of a funny and memorable thing that it really excited people's imagination and people ended up using that metric for a lot of different things over my time there. Yeah. I like the idea of Reddit being the thief of work time or, I mean, there's this saying, my dad, maybe it was Shakespeare who wrote, I don't know, my dad reminded me the other day, um, uh, he said, procrastination, Hugo, is the thief of time. And where my mind goes now is Reddit as the thief of work. But I do question that. I do feel like if my mind skates somewhere else for a while and comes back, maybe I'm tricking myself, but I feel like it's all in the name of productivity in the end. It actually reminds me, I don't know if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but there was a study of Brazilian, this is may seem totally tangential, but it is relevant. There, there was a study of Brazilian ant colonies in which like 10% of ants just did nothing. And so the scientists took away the ants that did nothing and came back a day later and 10% of the ants were doing nothing again. So they took those away and came back the next day and 10% of ants were doing nothing. So it is like this this almost like homeostatic a universal constant. <laughs> yes, yeah, steady state of, and it may have to do with redundancy and elasticity. Actually, there, I think there may be an argument with respect to that there. But this is my way of justifying. No matter how much work I'm getting done, I don't really use Reddit so much as we'll get. I want to use Reddit though, but it, it's, it's such a you know big space. You got to find your home on the site. It's it's one of the hardest challenges of onboarding new users. So you see, there we go, and that's. A question that maybe data can answer, perhaps? We, we did do an analysis on it one time. It was very early on in a user's life cycle. If they spent more than 10 minutes on a particular subreddit, that meant they had found something that resonated with them and they retained a lot better. So getting the right subreddit in front of people was was a really big challenge. And like, how do you do that when you have no information about them? Like, This is a problem that all social media platforms really have. But I don't know. It's also an interesting example in that you could interpret that analysis very incorrectly, where like I see versions of this, like that was not how people interpreted this particular analysis. But like someone could look at that and say like, oh, as long as they spend 10 minutes on something, they'll come back. Making people interpret or getting people to interpret analysis the right is always a, an interesting problem. Yeah. And there is some like weird regression to the main vibe or like playing to the main, regression to the main is, I'm totally incorrectly using that term, but I, I think... Are you getting that lowest common denominator, maybe? Well, yeah, what I'm, well, not quite the lowest, so... The averagest? <laughs> one example, like, yeah, the averagest. I mean, like, hospitals, right, are designed in, like, pretty, I think, challenging ways with a lot of, like, bright lights and metallic surfaces. And so, for example, a friend of mine um, gave birth recently, and the hospital experience was absolutely horrible for her in, in Sydney, Australia, for what that's worth. But she did recognize that she was like, they're playing to like, perhaps it may be the worst case scenario or close to the worst case scenario in, in this case, but they're playing to some form of average and not really accounting for each, the needs of each um, individual in the hospital system. So I think when we do any form of analysis, yeah, playing to the average or playing to somewhere along the distribution, whether it's highest density or least risky or most risky is a deep challenge we have in these places. Yeah. I mean, another version of that that you see a lot is power users. They end up dominating metrics because they just like the amount of whatever thing they need to do, it drowns out like the very casual people who are only drops in a bucket. And like that was a, a thing that happened early on at Reddit as well. And when I, I was analyzing an experiment result and we had we were trying to recommend subreddits to people and 
it was a very basic algorithm for recommending subreddits where it's like if you're subscribed to something and a large number of the subscribers for that subreddit overlap with some other one, be like, oh, you might like this one too. Yeah. And just to see what would happen in that experiment, like there was the control variant where you kind of didn't get anything, which not super meaningful <laughs> in this case uh, to compare nothing to recommendation. So we wanted to have something else to compare the quality of like recommendations versus say randomness. And when we looked at the results, we were very surprised because the variant where people got a completely random subreddit was so much better than the one where it was like actually supposedly related by subscriber overlap. And when we dug into the results, it was because of power users, because there were so many power users on the site at that time. Like There were not nearly as many users or, or casual users for that matter. And for power users who had seen it all, like getting some totally random thing was more compelling to them. But they were completely washing out the casual users who liked the subscription overlap algorithm variant. And like just segmenting your metrics, like breaking them down, finding the subpopulations, like the surprise you get from digging into an analysis like that, you can't plan for it. But it's some of the most interesting stuff that happens when you're doing data work, in my opinion. For sure. And that's the science. Actually, maybe I always ask people, what's the science in data science? And one thing I've never heard before as a response is you can't plan for it. And I think that's maybe one of the best responses to that type of question. I think there are practices you can get into that enable you to discover things regularly. Yes. Which are looking at your metrics. Like I can remember, like I would many times where I was like looking at the distribution of content by category and I would see some really huge spike in like, oh, wow, there's like a bunch of, of news content today. What's going on? And just actually looking at that surprising thing that I wouldn't have seen. Like, I wouldn't have been surprised if I wasn't in the habit of looking at this useful view in a dashboard, I will add. But I wouldn't have had that discovery. And I learned a lot just by getting into that practice of looking at something I knew was important and finding unexpected things. Yeah. And then answering the question of why it happened. Like, that is actually kind of scientific, even though it's not a formal experiment. I mean, I love the term kinda scientific. I'm actually going to write that down. <laughs> but it's more scientific than a lot of the shit I've seen out there, including in basic science research to be like some of the some of the lab meetings I've had historically it's Yeah. The other example that came to mind of what I called incorrectly called regression to the mean, I think is certain forms of marketing. You know, I've worked in and out of of marketing in a variety of ways and the fact that we look at like some marketing funnel and look at conversion rates and optimize throughput of conversion and this type of stuff through to a sale and then retention and all of these things, using just the numbers, we don't think about the cost of negatives. Like you can get more people in the top and just look at those numbers and not realize how much destruction you're doing to your brand, for example. So one example is I spoke at a conference some time ago and somehow the conference like I got on, they gave my cell number to all the vendors at said conference. And then I went on holidays. I was in Mendoza, Argentina. I was at a vineyard and I got some call from a poor BDR for like from, I remember the company's name, but it's like a data tooling space. 
And this guy, I just let, and I was like, I know you're just a cog in the machine, dude. And I like, I was like, that's the system I hate, but you can, you need to lose this number and you need to delete it from whatever database you're getting it from as well. And that was one of the darker moments for me. But that brand, like I, I hate that company now, right? And, but I've worked for companies where that's happened. So I think when just looking at the numbers, we don't think about all the different costs and returns of everything else happening there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Well, and like, I also think this is something where a question that I, I've gotten before, like I, in my time as a data science manager, I've managed people who are more like the, the analyst archetype and more of the statistician archetype. And the question that I get asked a lot is, when do we actually need the statistical work? Because so many times the time horizon, the turnaround time is so quick that you really need more of a basic analysis. And an answer that I give a lot is, is this a trap door or is it a one-way or two-way door? Kind of the same concept, but it's, if you make a mistake about this, how reversible is it? And if there's a huge cost to making a mistake, then it behooves you to do some very precise modeling and really quantify your uncertainty because you might be protected. And I don't know if that sales call would have qualified for that in that company's decision-making process, but you can think of other things for sure where the, the risk of a mistake is really great. So they need to be careful and know exactly what they're getting into. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what I described there, nothing would change this besides, like this is an endemic problem in how sales and marketing interrelate and the whole model, uh, the BDR and AE model and the way they interoperate, which is related to the amount of churn in, in sales teams as well. But I love the idea that you mentioned trapdoor decisions. I'm wondering if there are any concrete examples you can talk about from your time at Reddit or Twitter, for example? I mean, content classification is a big one. Like, this is something that I've seen in ad tech as well. Their advertisers are very sensitive about what their ads are placed against. In some cases, it can look really insensitive. In some cases, it could it could just be... like I, I don't know. You, you saw a lot of advertising budgets shrivel up in times of crisis. The advertisers are very conservative and they pull their ads. And for a website where ads are just kind of randomly getting injected into varying content, like an algorithmic feed. You want to know what content your ad is being placed next to. So those classification models end up becoming really important because if you place a advertiser, like a big advertiser, like a big client who has low tolerance for failure, if you place their ad against something that's going to make them look bad or somehow trash their reputation... They might just pull budget from you and you lose a ton of revenue. Yep. That's a situation where, where ML ends up being really important. And like maybe it's not purely ML. Maybe you have a human in the loop system or something to check before you do something super risky. But that's a problem I've seen a lot working with, with user-generated content that warrants precise statistical work. I was actually buying some Google ad space for a company some time ago, a company in the data tooling space. And somehow the ads, I didn't know this was going to happen. They ended up on Breitbart. And I'm not going to make any <laughs> any comments around whether that's like I don't want to alienate any you know. Sure, but it might not have been what you intended, or like some people just don't want to be against political stuff at all. Yeah, and it, it was actually fun. It was like someone from the company, head of sales, was like, "Hey, there's an ad on Breitbart," and I was like, "What were you doing on Breitbart, dude?" And he was like, "Look, someone sent me a link," and I'm like, "Okay." Showing your true colors now, my friend. But you do want to have more context around where these things are going. I do want to move on and get more into the weeds around particular failure modes in data science. But I also 
I'm so fascinated by Reddit and so fascinated by the difference between Reddit to me kind of reminds me of the chaos of the early internet in a way like it doesn't feel like web 2.0 in the way that a lot of other stuff does. And I'm actually, I want to read something. I don't know if you know John Perry Barlow, who was in Grateful Dead, right? He was like a huge independence of cyberspace, free speech guy. And he has an essay called A Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And he got everything wrong, right? But it's incredibly idealistic and I think important to recognize. He wrote, we are creating a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice, accorded by race. I can't believe I'm reading this actually. Economic power, military force or station of birth. Because it went, you know, the absolutely opposite way. We are creating a world where anyone, anywhere may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. Now, I wouldn't say none of that is true. I do think we have to remember we have created a world where a lot more people are able to self-publish. Now, whether that's distributed, whether they get a platform, whether they get deplatformed, these are all different concerns. But create more people are able to be creators anyway. He then wrote, your legal concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They are all based on matter, and there is no matter here. Now, I feel like, of course, Reddit being reminiscent of a lot of early internet stuff, to me anyway, is a place where a lot of people can, can say things. Of course, you get a huge amount of discrimination and a huge amount of displays of privilege, and I suppose less represented groups have a lot of lack of privilege there, there as well. But I'm, I'm just wondering your thoughts on coming in and to a data function which does have this almost chaotic landscape of just a massive information and how to even think about organizing that type of stuff at a place like Reddit. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And the, the answer I would give in a situation like that, this is maybe not satisfying, <laughs> but... Uh, in many cases, like you just need to start with what's most valuable to the business. Like what, what do you need to know to answer questions that will help you improve the product? And like that doesn't necessarily always mean like just ruthlessly optimize for revenue or growth or whatever. Like you need to look after the health of the ecosystem on the website. But trying to pick pointed things where it, it's information that you might well, you need to know what you're gonna do with it. Like prioritizing that is a good way to start. And like, there are so many other things that would be really fun to dig into that, I don't know, you save it for a hack week project. I definitely did some stupid analysis while I was there or, or things that like, there wasn't necessarily business value, but it was really interesting to see. Like maybe to, to give a quick example, the way emoji work, the, way, the actual underlying Unicode, the application of skin color on like a, a thumbs up hand or whatever, it's a separate Unicode character. That's just like the, the coloration that gets merged with the, the hand emoji. That meant you could write a regex to process and see when people are choosing to apply a skin tone and how that distribution varied across subreddits, which was fascinating. And largely what you would, well, I don't know, largely what you would expect. I guess it depends on your expectations, but there was a real difference in how people were self-identifying with their emoji skin color across subreddits. And it was an interesting way of seeing how online communities can match or not match uh, real-life communities. Yeah, amazing. Something that came to mind then, if any listeners haven't heard of the Unicode Consortium, I definitely suggest you check out these people who, you know, they make big decisions around what become emojis and what don't. I'd like to see ASCIiArt make a huge comeback as far as I'm concerned. That's... Definitely. 
very important art form. Absolutely. The eliminated manuscripts yeah. of the early internet, truly. Exactly. Speaking of quests and holy grails. <laughs> my, my walkthrough to data science that just begins with a giant ASCII art. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like an old game walkthrough. That'd be sweet. I, maybe someday. I think that's a good side project. I also, I'm grateful for you to mentioning uh, regular expressions because whenever anyone asks me about like AI and what it's capable of and that type of stuff, I say we still use regular expressions, <laughs> which I think is actually very important to recognize. Um, these are like, yeah. and I feel like these are like Fred Flintstone tools or something like that. It does seem relatively, seems like we should have moved past it, but they are so powerful and relatively brittle, but in the space of questions we have to answer, there is not yet an, a, a startling alternative. Yeah. There's so many things like that too. It's fascinating, really. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of ad hoc, brittle solutions. One thing you said about Reddit that I'm interested in, with respect to Reddit, but also with respect, you said um, thinking about what's valuable to a business may not necessarily be revenue. It could be thinking you know, about health of the ecosystem or health of the website. And I love the idea of thinking about health. I think we don't think about the health of stakeholders enough. So either about Reddit or Twitter or anything else you're interested in with respect to data practice, how can we think about health of ecosystems, being corporate ecosystems, technological ecosystems, data ecosystems, information ecosystems, product ecosystems, and all the relevant stakeholders? This one might be a hard one for me to answer because <laughs> like, I don't feel like I ever really came to a good answer when I was thinking about it at Reddit. But I guess maybe an example would be, who are the incumbents? Is it easy for there to be a new upstart? Like that was another big problem that I saw at my time at Reddit was it was really hard to create a new subreddit. If you make one, how do you get people to come and participate and grow? So it's not just the founder carrying the entire way through. And like, this is a problem that's true of all online communities. Like you see this in discords. Like, I don't know how many professional slacks I've gotten invited to that like they're great for like two weeks and then it slowly fizzles out. Like that's kind of an ecosystem problem. Like how much interchange is there? How do new things grow? Like are these old systems uh, or like old spaces or, or whatever, like entities in this, this ecosystem, are they sucking up all the oxygen? And like, what's the preferred dynamic? I mean, another thing that I, I don't know if I remember the exact percentage of it. Let me see if I can find. So there's this idea in internet culture called the 1% rule. Where And like this is something that I have definitely seen from the inside of a platform where most of the content is only created by a small portion of users. Like maybe it's not literally 1%, but most people are lurkers. And that creates maybe a perception that there's more consensus that there really is on some subjects because there's only 1% of people talking on a platform and everyone else is just looking at it and thinking like, yeah, I guess this is the opinion. Maybe they don't fully agree with it, but they also don't post or participate. So their perspective doesn't necessarily get represented on an online website. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, of course, we have the incentives of whatever algorithms and what they service and that type of stuff as well. But I do actually um, encourage people to realize that there's mad selection bias in terms of what we see. And I mean, even in terms of who, who talks in, this is getting a bit personal, but I've started a new company this year. And at my previous company, there are a lot of like heated conversations and a lot of energy, right? And current company is, is slightly more subdued in a really nice way. But I need to be careful not to speak too much during meetings, I think. And part of that is the selection bias of a handful of people who say a lot of things 
and you don't necessarily understand what the worldview of the entire company is. So this occurs in many domains, I think. Yeah, for sure. So having spent so much time talking about the value that data can generate and produce, I'd love to dive into how it can fail. So any patterns you've seen with respect to failure modes or any specifics that would be interesting to you know, burgeoning and practicing data scientists would be... Um, what should we keep in mind with respect to how we can fail? Yeah. I mean, some really big ones that I see are, I think a lot of data people get into the work because they're committed to the idea that they're like really figuring out the truth or they're really figuring out how something works. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but I think a problem that a lot of people, especially junior people run into is they give a more detailed answer than they really need to, or they, they try to define things more precisely than they really need to, which is getting back to that, that trapdoor idea. And the way that this often manifests is maybe someone asks you a question and then you go off and you do an analysis on it and you really deep dive, you get really specific, you go really far into the weeds or a rabbit hole or whatever metaphor you want to use. And then when you come back, you realize they've already moved on. Uh, because you took too long to answer their question. Yeah. And like this creates a perception of like a data scientist being kind of like an ivy tower or ivory tower, uh, irrelevant, out of touch person. And it, it means they're probably not going to go back and ask you for help in the future because they'll just be like, whatever, they're not going to give us the answer in time. And it just like creates this vicious cycle of data scientists being left out of decision making processes or not being in the proverbial room. Another thing that happens, uh, which is related to maybe there being too much detail, there's this XKCD, it was kind of a recent one, that was called Data Trap, where there's a guy sitting on a computer and he's like, oh, we have a bunch of data, I'm going to analyze it. And there's a person standing behind him, calling him a fool, telling him, you can't, you can't analyze it, uh, you're only going to create more data. And it's goofy. It seems like, why would that be a problem? But it is, because information overload is really real. And if you are under some pressure to hit a goal or to meet a deadline as a, an engineer or a product manager, and you like have you get this like exhaustive table of every possible thing that a data scientist considered in their analysis, they're like, I don't know, this is too much for me to read. I'm just going to make a decision. Maybe one final failure mode is assuming that the answer is in the data. There are a lot of things that you might not have coverage for, or the, the data just won't represent well. And knowing the limits of what you can do with your data is very important because you don't want to mislead people. You don't want to misrepresent something. You don't want to get yourself on the hook for something that maybe you can't really be accountable for or speak to. And you know, you, you just got to be humble about what data can actually teach you or, or show you so you don't end up driving a, a bad outcome. Totally. And I think there's almost like a awareness building and education systems around that even needed in a lot of orgs. I mean, you know, there is this trope of people either thinking, you know, we've done this for years without data science. So like, what can data, how, how can all of that, you know, heady ivory tower stuff actually help us in this business, for example. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's a, you know, Data scientists, uh, prophets, and wizards who can, who have insight into the future. They can see the future somehow using computation and using their own forms of computational alchemy. And, you know, and so we need, I think, awareness building and education around this rich middle ground of what 
we are actually capable of can go a long way. Yeah. Well, and I think another aspect of that, like getting at the the wizard or the guru thing, is sometimes people want an out. Like they don't feel comfortable making a decision. And I'm talking about like the stakeholder of your analysis um, in this case. But like sometimes they want to have something to fall back on and be like, well, even if I was wrong, that's what the data said. And they still need to be comfortable making a decision. Like hopefully the data was helpful. But if they're wrong, they shouldn't be blaming it on the data. And if you are trying to use data for things that it shouldn't be used for, like you got to be careful. You get into that situation where you are the thing that takes the fault. Absolutely. And I think um, I had Peter Wang from Anaconda and from, you know, everything else that Amazing Man does on the podcast recently. And he was like, Hugo, we need to start using the term. I got more excited because he occasionally sounds even more excited than I do. But he was like, Hugo, we need to start using the term cybernetics more. And I was like, why is that? And he said, because cybernetics is all about figuring out the relationship between the human, the controller, and the computational system the robot and how we can still have agency over everything we do and in our decision-making. And we require creative agency to find meaning in life is something Peter also said. But figuring out how to have agency and responsibility when you are coupled with computational environments and systems is going to be increasingly important. But people will always pass, dickheads will always pass the buck as well. And you can quote me on that. (laughs) I'll also quote you on saying that we are already cyborgs. Oh, yeah. Did I say that, though? (laughs) I mean, implicitly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The idea that we're all in a cybernetic interface with our data uh, seems kind of cyberpunk and cool. (laughs) I'm totally into that. And I want to move on to data scientists, individual and communal incentive systems. But you've mentioned dashboards several times now, which is incredibly important. But And this is horrible. And I know maybe you can't talk about the specific technologies you use, but you and I both I've worked in Python. I just discovered today you've worked in R as well. What are good dashboarding solutions for people using Python? I don't know. I mean, I, for me, I've mostly worked with uh, prefab BI tools. Like, I mean, like Looker and Data Studio built natively into BigQuery are the, the two that I would rely on now. Okay. I mean, you can get much more customized visualizations to embed in things with Python. But I'll be honest, I really like drag and drop interfaces for building data visualizations. Like ggplot is amazing, but... I'm kind of lazy. (laughs) I think Shiny makes it really, really easy for the R ecosystem. And we don't have something similar. Yes, definitely. I mean, there are a wide array of beautiful, beautiful tools. I mean, I've always enjoyed using Bokeh. Um, Altair can be used similarly. But it it feels like we don't have the strongest solution there. But maybe we don't need it as I, I mean, using a variety of BI tools is also the power of drag and drop. And I I think particularly with, with the idea of like the data flow paradigm, right? I'm even thinking about some of like the drag and drop ML tools. Now, there are reasons to not have drag and drop ML tools, but in order to build pipelines, which is what they are, having drag and drop is incredibly useful for a lot of that, right? Yeah, definitely. And also like, it is kind of nice to have low code options too for for people who don't feel comfortable. Like maybe they're earlier in their career and they just want a crutch to, to get them into that. Maybe they're some cross-functional person who it's not their job <laughs> to know how to code in Python or R. Uh, and it's still nice to have them be able to participate with you. So there's a lot of value in a, a low-code tool. Like it'd be nice if there was something natively in, in Python, but at the same time, we still seem like we're doing okay as a field. Yeah, I think so. I do think, I've always half-joked that low-code tools can't really help you with delimiter issues. And it's a half-joke because like, you know, how many times do we still suffer there? So let's jump into 
incentive systems for data scientists? Something you mentioned earlier, something you've thought about a great deal, and particularly in your role as thinking about tooling more generally. I, I think it's a really interesting question. So I'm interested in what some of the problems are with data scientists incentive systems and how we can go about uh, fixing them. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I think a lot of the incentive systems for data scientists are not unique to them, although they have like a, a data science flavor. A lot of big companies have a specific career ladder and people really want to get promoted for reasons that are understandable. They want to be recognized, they want to be rewarded, they want to make more money, whatever. Unfortunately, when you're trying to scale something like a career ladder, people end up interpreting it very literally. And you see things where people like want to demonstrate their technical depth, whatever that means, and they just default to using an overly elaborate solution that's inappropriate just so they can say that they've used it. I mean, like I was once a junior person that did the same thing. So I, I understand the mindset. But for that, like it's not necessarily focusing on the value that was created as much as it is just methods. And I think that dovetails pretty well with some of the discourse that's going around, at least on data Twitter, about why are conversations so much about tools? Why is it not about the problems that we're trying to solve? And that's also why I, I place an emphasis on the role of data science to be about solving problems with data. If you do that with something really basic, like a dashboard, uh, I guess I'm, I'm coming off as a, a dashboard appreciator in this podcast. But like, I, I don't know, like a lot of people hate on Excel, but Excel is a basic tool that a lot of the world runs on. And it doesn't have to be advanced for it to be useful. But when people are pressured by their career ladders to demonstrate technical depth, they don't want to do the basic thing. Another version of this is also just people wanting to do things that they think are fun or interesting instead of things that are useful uh, or interpretable or actionable. And a very common form of this is maintenance tasks. Doing maintenance and, and making sure that systems continue to run for a long time is generally less fun than doing groundbreaking work or building an entirely new system. And I think that for data scientists, maintenance becomes a bit more abstract as well. I have an idea that I, I've never really taken the time to flesh it out in depth, but I feel like there's, in the same way that there's tech debt, there's kind of analysis debt where you know your, your bits rot and your assumptions rot too. Whatever you understood to be true about some certain dynamic in the product that you're working on, like it may change as new users join your platform and, and change the distribution of certain behaviors. So like to, to go back to that example of the experiment that I talked about earlier at Reddit, where power users crowded out the casual users in that, that early experiment result. Over time, when the, the user base shifted and there were way more new people and way more casual people, we didn't see stuff like that anymore. And then you started having an opposite dynamic where super casual users would crowd out the power users. Your assumptions about how things work change over time, and that's why you need to spend time engaged with your data, looking at it, and enabling the surprise, enabling the discovery by being engaged with the data so that your assumptions can evolve as the thing you're studying does. That all resonates a lot. In particular, and this is a challenge in other disciplines as well, the, the idea of um, for to climb the career ladder, the incentive to build, to focus on building new flashy things and not necessarily maintaining things which could provide more value to an org. Yeah. How do we fix that? That's an unfair <laughs> question. How do we even think about because it seems like that challenge is downstream of so many other things that are happening. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I really don't know. Like for my part, I try to celebrate maintenance work. I, I try to celebrate when someone on my team, you know, runs like a, a team lunch and learn or something. That's really valuable. It 
is not something that we need to do on a daily basis to make sure that we're creating new things or, or answering questions that we need to have, but it's thinking about the team and how the team grows together and how the team functions together and making sure that people are learning things and feeling they have engagement with the people around them. Yeah. Thank people for that kind of thing. If you never acknowledge maintenance tasks, they definitely will not be something that people prioritize because it's invisible and you only notice when something's wrong. And I don't, I mean, you know, some listeners may know that I tend to engage in lofty thoughts occasionally, but where my mind goes here is this is a failure mode of data science and institutions, but it's also a failure mode of civilizational collapse is, you know, the inability (laughs) to maintain existing shit. I mean, you know, one of the problems the Roman civilization faced was the inability to maintain their growing road and aqueduct systems, right? Like that shit was crumbling under them in the end. So I think we need to be very careful around, and I think about this in, once again, I know too much about the data tooling space, but it's a good question when chatting with vendors about what tools to use and that type of stuff or adopting open source solutions is, what is the risk assessment with respect to how long and in what ways this product or package will be maintained and maintainable, right? Yeah. Or like maybe what you're kind of getting at is that you are considering constraints early in the process rather than just thinking about like, oh, this is all the stuff we can do now and like thinking about growth or thinking about like whatever benefit you're looking to accrue. You're also thinking about like, what is going to be the limiter on this? And going way back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about programming in a distributed computing environment, they were thinking a lot more about how can things go wrong from the start. I don't think we do that as much in data. Maybe it's because we don't feel like the consequences of being wrong are as near and present of a danger. But I like the idea of starting from constraints before you you really think about scaling, at least. Absolutely. And I think something implicit in this conversation now is the time scale of different incentives, like we do focus on short-term incentives far far too much, and then the cost of particular actions, whether they're negative or positive externalities, or playing it all out, what happens in the medium to long-term. And I do think where humans, in my experience, tend to be relatively limited in thinking about the costs of things that are far away in time or space. So... I, at the start of COVID, I was, I was living in the US in New York, as you know, and came back, like it was getting really full on there, right? To say the least, it was very challenging for a lot of people. And I came back to Sydney, Australia, and people here were, were chill, like, and they weren't wearing masks, they were like just walking around the street, like not social distancing, like all of that. And I was like, I felt like, um, you ever see that movie, 12 Monkeys? I've not seen it now. So it's Bruce Willis comes back from the future. There's like a pandemic in the future and he goes back in time to warn everyone a pandemic's coming. And I felt like that. And I was like, hey, everyone, it is actually real what's happening. But people, because they'd seen it on TV and it seemed a far way away, couldn't relate to it in a lot of ways. And I think it's the same when thinking around the costs of something that may happen in five years instead of one year, where we give it, there's almost some like exponential decay of weight we give to medium to long-term impact of decisions. Yeah. One, like another thing, maybe that's a factor here is people changing jobs regularly. Probably people make decisions that are, they would think differently about it if they expected to be at the same job in five years time versus they're going to leave sooner than that. That's something that I don't know how to solve in tech either because people job hop for all sorts of different reasons. And a big one is better salaries, but I'm not going to tell anyone not to go for more money. Yeah, well, this is hilarious though, right? This isn't only for tech, this isn't only for data science, right? But the fact that 
the career path, you're better off changing companies and you can't get that salary increase internally. And if you do get that offer, it's probably because you've already got another offer somewhere else. And by that time, you're probably going to go in anyway. This seems like something that thoughtful organizations could potentially fix, right? To keep employees. I'd hope, yeah. I wonder if there's an argument that this type of, and this is maybe getting pretty experimental psychologically, but if there's an argument that this is, you know, that the revolving door of people, you know, in particular in fan companies actually helps the ecosystem to share technologies and to unsilo knowledge as well. Yeah, they distribute best practices. Yeah, which I think is incredibly... Maybe it's not all bad. Yeah, I think that's definitely some form of glass half full. And we increasingly require optimism as a strategy these days, I think. So speaking of optimism as a strategy, I'd love to know what you think the biggest challenges facing data science and machine learning are as an industry. I'm interested in what your utopian vision of our space is in 10 years and your darkest, deepest, nightmarish dystopian. No, that's a joke, but how could things go wrong as well? Yeah. Well, I guess like to me, like I've talked about this a couple of times now, but I think some of the biggest challenges really just misalignment on what we're supposed to be doing when we're on data teams. And I actually think a big part of this is we don't have a lot of really good examples of what a mature data practice looks like or experienced leaders who everyone can shamelessly copy. You just have so many instances of people having to invent everything from scratch. And like people talk about like, I wish practitioners wrote about what they were doing more so we could learn about these practices across companies. So, I mean, and what you were saying just a moment ago about people moving in and out of big companies and disseminating best practices. Like maybe we're going to get there at some point. But right now, I think we just don't have a lot of examples of what good looks like, which maybe maybe to say my utopian vision is that one day data roles are going to be an extremely mundane thing. Like, I mean, I feel like software engineering is kind of getting there right now, or just at least in some places, it seems like a boring middle class job. Maybe one day being a, a data scientist will be like that, too. Instead of being the, the sexiest job of the 21st century, it'll be like, oh, I don't know, my cousin's one of those. It doesn't sound that interesting. <laughs> But like I, I hope that one day it won't be a strategic advantage to have data. It'll just be understood that that's what you have to, to be a business. And everyone will know how to interact with data teams. Everyone will know the workflows, the value creation process. Tooling will be good, like not, not too fragmented. And uh, like we'll have like a good pipeline of new people coming into the career as well as like a lot of senior people who can teach junior people. The, the dystopian take maybe would be if things get even more fragmented than they are both tools and, and techniques and job titles, like the the fragmentation, like the obsession with job titles, it starts feeling like a prestige hierarchy. Like people are just kind of scrambling and trying to get ahead of each other and like not really caring about like, is the field advancing? They're really just kind of worried about like whatever their narrow niche is and not having any interest in what other people are doing or curiosity or desire to have cross-pollination or learn from it. Like, Deep fragmentation, honestly, is my dystopian vision. And I, I don't think we're there by any means, but we could get there if people got a little too uh, picky or obsessive. Thank you. I actually, both of those resonate with me in different ways. The dystopian vision is similar to a lot of my living, breathing nightmares. But the utopian vision, I love. I love the expression of utopia's mundaneness. And I think that maybe plays into, I always wonder why, like, a lot of our 
futuristic art is always and culture is always dystopic. And it's because, you know, that's maybe more engaging in a lot of ways, but also because the idea of a utopia or the way we'd like things to go is maybe a bit boring and not something which will necessarily engage people who watch, you know, streaming platforms all the time, all that type of stuff. So I do really, really appreciate that. We should surface more of the boring things in life. So as you know, a lot of our listeners are data scientists and data analysts and machine learning engineers and people of, of such ilk. And I think there's so much for them to get out of your hard-earned wisdom in this conversation. But I'm wondering if you have a, a call to action for them or, or something you, you think it would be healthy for the ecosystem for everyone to start doing a bit more of. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I would like to see is people just kind of trying to break down silos more. And like that can mean many different things. Like It could be talking to friends at other companies who are doing similar things and trading notes on your work. It could be writing blog posts. It could be podcasts. I don't know. Like, I would just like to see more people talking about the work that they're doing with the specific intention of trying to get other people interested in it and learn from it. And the other half of that is people being engaged with the stuff that's being put out there. Again, with the interest or with the, the intention to really try to learn from it and participate in cross-pollination. Like, I do think that we have a lot more shared experiences working in data than a lot of people realize. Yeah, I like that. And something just came to mind. I love the idea of more spaces for sharing your experience. Of course, that is something that I try to do with, with this podcast, for example. I recall you mentioned to me when we spoke a while ago that you've got some professional network of data scientists or professional development group or something like that. Did I make that up? <laughs> or? I mean, there's a lot of good ones on the internet. I'm doing like a professional fellowship thing this year. That It's a, a new program. It's called On Deck Data Science. A very great program. It's been a great way to meet other people who are in a similar career phase or really, again, like I, I mentioned, just be exposed to different ideas and people doing really different things. Like a, a cool thing for me is meeting people who don't work in consumer technology. Uh, like there, there's people doing all sorts of things, like they'll work for healthcare companies, they'll work for video game companies. And I just don't know what it's like to do data science in that area, but I probably could learn something from it. And something like that is really great. But even if you're not doing that, uh, like a, a really good community that is a free community is locally optimistic. It's it's a community Slack group. They also have a really good blog about what it's like to work in an analytics organization. And of course, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I am I'm a bit biased there, both as a employee of the company and as a power poster on the platform as well. Are you a power poster? I mean, I, I post a lot on Twitter. <laughs> I definitely do. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, Data Twitter has been a great source of community building for me as well. I mean, we met on Twitter and I have this weird thing with Twitter where I'll go there, I'll go to Twitter to DM someone for something like this, right? But in my head, I'll need to remember why I'm going to Twitter because otherwise I'll see something and I'll be like, oh, okay, now this event is happening. So I need to, and then suddenly I'm like, why was I on there? And then I'll close it in my browser and suddenly my phone will be in my hand looking at the app and I'm just like, okay. Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit, yes, that does happen to me as well. <laughs> you close it on your computer and you're like, oh, but maybe it's different on my phone. Yeah, totally. I, I don't even think, like my phone's in, I didn't even take my phone out of my pocket. It's suddenly like teleported there. I mean, that's some great product. Yeah. Product team working <laughs> on device teleportation. You mentioned you chatted with data scientists who, you know, work for video game companies. And I'm what you told me one example of that. I'm wondering, can we I love this example so much. <laughs> can you remind me of this example? Sure, sure. They talked about how to price cocaine in Grand Theft Auto. Uh, it was like an analysis that they did. That's amazing. <laughs> but you know, that's solving a problem with data. Absolutely. And and it's actually solving 
Firstly, it's a hilarious question in a lot of ways. And there may be, if you have ethical concerns about Grand Theft Auto, I totally respect those. And if you have ethical concerns around, you know, playing a game where you buy cocaine on the street, totally understand those. Those aren't what I'm concerned with currently, though. What I'm concerned with is thinking about market dynamics in a video gaming world and actually figuring out robust pricing around that, which is like actually an incredibly interesting question, particularly if, as GTA is doing a lot more of, has a lot more like many-to-many scenarios, right? Where it's not just one person playing a game, but it's a lot of people interacting and creating their own world, essentially. So thinking about market dynamics in that type of space is really non-obvious and an interesting economics question, essentially. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you also see dynamics like real-world economies in games like World of Warcraft or, or other similar things where people are finding things that are valuable to them and pricing it accordingly. Yeah, So everybody share your experiences, break out of silos. Katie, I just want to thank you once again for such a enlivening and thoughtful conversation and sharing all of your wisdom. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.